Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 5th, 2009. My guest is Michael Munger, Chair of Political Science and Professor of Economics at Duke University. And Mike is currently visiting Friedrich Alexander University at Erlangen-Nuremberg. Mike, welcome back to EconTalk. It's a pleasure to be back. Mike, our topic for today is the strange world of franchising and dealerships the way that uh, corporations sometimes distribute their products out into the retail space. And it's in the news because uh, Chrysler and GM are shuttering a uh, a lot of dealerships. They're closing them down. And it, it raises a question of this somewhat unusual form, uh, the idea that GM, unlike, say, Apple, Apple has a thing called an Apple store, uh, that's an app part of Apple. Uh, but GM doesn't have a GM store in the same way. It has an independently owned thing called a dealership. And of course, as they shut these down, uh, there are some legal issues that we'll probably get into a little bit later on. But I thought we'd start by talking about just the nature of this kind of institution and why it might uh, make sense at all. Yeah, I, I we had talked a little bit a week ago about the, the topic we might take up, and franchising is something that's always interested me. So I, I spent a little time reading about why uh, this kind of odd arrangement exists. And people had originally speculated that the reason automobiles were sold through these franchises was that capital markets were imperfect uh, when automobiles first started to be sold. And then during the 30s, it was difficult to raise money because you didn't really have, uh, if, if you had cars people didn't want to buy, you didn't really have very good collateral. So the speculation was that franchising, selling franchises that had an incentive to sell a particular kind of car and then in effect advertise a particular kind of car. I'm a Chevy dealer. I'm going to advertise Chevys. I'm going to try to sell them. I pay for that privilege, and that's a way to raise capital for the company. Raise uh, cap- When you say raise capital, which which player are you thinking about? Well, the, 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 the argument was that it, in addition to selling stock and to selling bonds, the General Motors Corporation could raise money to invest in larger plants by having a guaranteed place where it could sell its cars. And this would you know, make – meaning this would make the, um, the lender more comfortable with lending GM money because they could – It isn't the it's, – it's the franchise fee. The, 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 the additional money comes from the franchise fee. So I'm in the local community. I own some land. I go to a bank, and I borrow, the, I borrow from the local lender the money that I then send to GM. GM couldn't borrow all this money. But local dealers all over the country can borrow locally because they have local collateral. And then if you raise the franchise fee enough, that's another way for General Motors to raise money. It, it, it turns out that although that's plausible, like a lot of things in economic trust, as you know, it's a plausible story. It's just not true. Okay. <laughs> it, it turns out to be because 
then why would we continue to do that once they were well capitalized? And although it may be hard to believe if you read the paper now, just a few years ago, our automobile companies were pretty darned well capitalized. Yeah. So that's not the explanation. That's not the real story. Well, what's interesting is that once franchisees, that is people who bought the right to be a dealer, for a particular kind of automobile in the 50s and 60s, they tended to be fairly wealthy people. These were It was a pretty good way to make money. And they were particularly powerful in like local chamber of commerce. And they got a bunch of laws passed. In fact, in, in I believe all but two states, and not, I don't know about Alaska and Hawaii, but in 46 of the, of the main states, it's illegal for any of the automobile companies to own their... Uh, retail outlets directly. They the, have to be locally owned. Technical term, I think, would be vertical integration, right? Yeah, so you, so you, you can't sell it yourself. You have to have it's somebody else. It's against the law it for GM to have its own? Because I guess that would be a possible threat uh, that GM could use to to uh, to a dealer. They could say, if you don't behave, we'll start our own outlet. Yep. But, of course, they can do that all the time with their own competing GM dealer. Ah, but there right? are which is there, hang on, which is part of this issue. The claim right now, which is a bizarre claim, I don't. We're going to get into some of this, uh, the economics of whether this makes any sense. But the claim now is that GM and Chrysler have quote too many dealerships that compete yeah. with each other, and they bid down uh, the profit margin, and they don't do enough volume, presumably. And but of course, th- that's that threat would be reasonable to. Keep franchise fees higher than they. Uh, that's right. Would keep franchise fees higher than they otherwise would be. It's written into the contract that you have um, regional, regionally exclusive license. So it's not like there's a Starbucks every three blocks. There can't be another Buick dealership. Back when there were Buicks, uh, within a certain number of miles, it was written into the contract. And Russ, it's for just the reason you say. That meant that I could sell the franchise for more. It's more valuable if I put in there uh, a regional exclusivity clause. Okay, but the, your basic point, to go back to your your uh, observation, is that some of the nature of the current distribution system was uh, was politically designed. Well, and then the, the the real problem is that most states, in addition the saying that the automobile companies can't own directly their own retail outlets, that is, like you said, be vertically integrated, they cannot close the dealership without the dealer's permission unless they pay, basically pay back the entire franchise fee. So suppose you're General Motors and you have uh, Plymouth or Pontiac, a line that's not doing very well. You can't close it. You have to keep manufacturing at a loss because it's even more expensive to say, we're going to stop manufacturing it because you would have to pay off all the franchise fees that you'd collected of all the Pontiac dealers all over the country. Well, I don't understand that. So but these are state laws. No, but let's. I. It's a weird law in the following sense because you, uh, to my ear, you just mixed up two things, which I know they go together, but it's not obvious. One is I can't. I can't close a franchise. I can't say I've got too many. And presumably, the reason that GM is able to do this now is they're in bankruptcy, yeah, which is right. which is going to, of course, throw the whole thing into the courts and a judge, yeah. and it's going to be messy, and we'll get into that. But 
Uh, you're saying that if I'm GM and I think, gosh, I made a mistake. I've got too many of these dealerships. I gotta, I, I gotta shut some of them down. Um, I can't do that, but I can stop making the car. Why? Except that they 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 foresaw that, and right. if you stop making the car, suppose I'm a Pontiac dealer. Right. If you stop making Pontiacs, you are in effect closing me down, and you've got to pay back the franchise fee. So there's a provision of the contract that I have to supply a certain number each year, or just yeah. have them be available, and or? I have to advertise the line. Who does? The the, the main company. GM has to. to. Yep. Which is. What happens with McDonald's also, right? Yeah. McDonald's ads uh, benefit each franchisee, uh, and that's part of the deal, that th- those are going to help them with their, with their sales. But the, the thing about, particular, this is really mostly a problem for General Motors. General Motors had this variety of different lines. A huge that variety. sort of competed against each other. None of them were very good. And the dealers, there might be a Pontiac, a, a, a Buick, a Chevrolet dealer. Now, in a way, they're not directly competing against each other. You can say, but they're side by side on some street. And General Motors would, what they wanted to do 10 or 20 years ago was close some of those lines. General Motors has two profitable lines, Chevrolet and Cadillac. The others go from something like a little loss to an enormous loss, but they couldn't close them because of these contract provisions and state laws, and I had never known that until I investigated it. Now, when you say they couldn't close them, there's a term, I assume, to the franchisee, to the franchise, right? It's not an open-ended forever term, or is it not? Or is it? The, the provision for most of them by state law is that the franchisee is the only one who has the option of ending the contract unless you can show cause. So suppose I, I did a bad job selling cars. Um, I didn't have enough lights. I didn't have enough of those little triangular flags that you crucial, have to have. Crucial, right. Yeah, but so if I don't do those things, uh, then, yes, GM could terminate. But GM cannot unilaterally terminate unless they have cause. The, 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 over and over again, we can go through the details, but over and over again, what's happened is because of the, the political clout of local franchise dealer associations, particularly in the House of Representatives, an enormous amount of contributions, for so many people in the House of Representatives comes from local auto dealers. They, they have a, a very disproportionate political clout, and they, they have managed to get a set of laws that not only... like Remember we said at the beginning, there's this big corporation, a tiny small business. It seems unfair. It's actually backward. All of the political power lies with the franchisees, and bankruptcy is the only way to get them out of this. So weird, you know. I've been thinking about the American auto industry, and if uh, this is a, this is a little bit of a digression, but it it ties in with what you're talking about. If you go back to say the 40s and the 50s and even the 60s, they had a pretty cushy uh, existence. There were three large firms: Chrysler, Ford, and GM. There were some smaller firms now and then, but a lot of them are gone. And by the 60s, they were gone. And they compete, quote, with each other, but their competition with each other is mitigated by the role of the unions. So the unions, because of because there are rents, because these three firms are generating profit, 
the unions are able to try or they certainly try and sometimes presumably are able to extract some of those profits for the workers yeah. in the form of higher benefits, higher pay, mostly higher benefits. Yeah, yeah long time long-term health care benefits, etc. And then suddenly, not suddenly, but somewhat suddenly in the 70s something happens that has on the surface nothing to do with the auto industry except uh uh changing the some of the parameters they there's a big jump in the price of gasoline and you know well okay that's going to affect how much people drive and how often they maybe replace their cars but it does something else it changes the attractiveness of certain kinds of cars and those kind of cars aren't made small cars and those cars cars with high mileage those cars aren't made much in the united states because historically the u.s has all this um land and people like to drive a lot and the gasoline tax is very small here, and the price of gasoline is very low. So there's no incentive for Americans to drive or then make small cars. But the rest of the world has a different model. The rest of the world has a huge gas tax as a revenue generator and as a, for all kinds of other reasons. And so they've been making small cars, cars all along, and now all of a sudden that foreign product is suddenly much more attractive in America than it used to be. So you have this industry that should respond dramatically to that, but they're not used to responding much because they're not really a very energetic institution. They are somewhat of a cartel, partly because there's only three of them, but partly because the union has set bunches of rules and compensation procedures that limit their ability to compete with each other. Yep, all of their creativity was about design, and what they meant by design was different shapes yeah, of sheet metal. which was fun, right? I, I, just, I just happened to see a piece of a documentary on Neil Young on the cover of his album at the I think it's called At the Beach there's this beautiful yellow Cadillac fin stuck in the ground it's, yep. it's a beautiful thing uh, yep. sort of it's a weird thing really so all of a sudden we come to the 80s and these small cars are suddenly more attractive and Americans have gotten used to that they might be an interesting option and presumably transportation costs have come down somewhat and as a result uh, these behemoths of the big three suddenly have to compete with this, these much more nimble companies, and they're handicapped by this incredible past that they've negotiated with their unions. So they, I think – this is the claim. I, I think it's true. They have these so-called legacy costs. They're retirees' health care plans that have been sure. negotiated. And now you bring me this other weird thing they've been saddled with. There's also, of course, environmental regulation, mileage restrictions, the cafe standards. Uh, which has made their life a little more challenging, and in particular ways they're not good at responding. So suddenly they're if they don't get more nimble, they're going to be eaten. But their ability to be nimble is they're kind of like carrying around these weights from the past yep. when they didn't need to be nimble. And now all of a sudden, and again, I didn't know about this. This makes it so fascinating. You're telling me that their nimbleness, which the natural thing in this world is to focus, right? So you look yep. at you look at um, at Honda. They have two cars. They have the Honda and they have the Acura. That's it. Yep. Uh, they have a little variety in the Honda line, right? They've got the Accord and the Civic. And they have the occasional other thing thrown in. But GM's got all these lines, like you say, which really aren't so different. So the right smart thing to do would be to shut some of them down and get better at making one of them. The reason, that they, have, them. The, the reason they have the different lines is for price discrimination. They're basically the same car but with different sheet metal, and that way you can say, well, this, this is a rich person's Some car, prestige. and rich people paid for it. 
And the Chevrolet was basically the same car, but it was a poorer person's car. Well, they fitted them out with a little more, a few more amenities. They had slightly better materials. It's uh, presumably they gave some value there. People would just buy the Chevrolet, but but still, so it, it, it seems like. But but the, the, you look at the difference in margins, and uh, GM became more and more cynical about this, where the, the differences in quality of parts, even on in the interior got less and less. They relied on the brand name, and it had the effect that you say, except they didn't buy Chevrolets, they bought Hondas. Yeah, they, they forgot yeah. that people could shift. Uh, yeah. They relied on the, on the loyalty, and there's that a, loyalty... A, if, if, you're, if your listeners are interesting, there's a, there's a book called The Decline and Fall of the U.S. Automobile Industry written by Brock Adams that talks about the psychology, and you mentioned this, Russ, but I, I wanted to bring it up again. People who lived, who worked in Detroit... They might live 15 miles um, away in one of the wealthy neighborhoods, Gross Point. They drove a, a large station wagon because on the weekends they needed to go out in the country and have picnics. And they, they pretty much thought that everyone else in the country either did or should live the same way. They, they actually had meetings where they were mystified. Why would anybody have a small car? Well, it won't last. We don't need to pay any attention. Their marketing was always, how do you like our cars, not what kind of car would you like? Right. And so that's... That, you're, you're, what you're saying about the psychology is exactly right. I, the unions, the other things, all the sort of leeches that are hanging on, yes, those didn't help. But the automobile companies themselves just put their heads in the sand. And that's a, you know, that's a fascinating issue because I think it's, uh, you know, it falls generally under the idea of, of corporate culture mm-hmm. and this idea of... You know, when your external environment's not very competitive, you get a corporate culture that's very bureaucratic and, as to use the word we've been using, not very nimble, not yeah. very good at changing. The analogy for me, I see it in in the newspaper business today, where the newspaper business, for a long, long time, made a reasonable amount of money because it's hard for uh, most cities to sustain a second quality newspaper. Uh, there, there's just, it's just not that competitive. Yeah. So they got very cushy. Um, the, the, they expanded their employment. Uh, they had, it, it's a weird thing. We don't, we don't think about it cause we're so used to the current world. Why should every paper have its own movie critic? I mean, if I live in Nashville, Tennessee, why do I care what the Nashville newspaper critic, movie critic thinks of the movie. Now, it could be he has some sensibility about what I like, but presumably there's somebody in another similarly sized city in a similar location who's better, and there are these enormous economies of scale that they didn't take advantage of because they didn't have to. And similarly in this auto business, you know, for so long they were so uh, unincentivized to compete that when the competition came, they, it wasn't just like, well, they got to try harder now. Yeah. They didn't know how to try harder. They nope. didn't – their whole hierarchy, their whole design team, their whole structure, their, and we're going to get to the dealership, back to the dealerships, the way they sold their cars wasn't prepared for a world where there were competitors out there who did things differently and better. I think that's one of the strangest things is, is the way that they sell the cars. Um, almost nobody, maybe some people do, but almost nobody likes the haggling process. Nope. So, you, you, you know, you go in, and uh, if you're going to buy a car, you, you wear your oldest clothes and uh, a sweater with a hole in it to, yeah. to try to say, no, I'm, I'm really poor. 
Uh, the guy sizes you up, and he sees that you're actually driving. You, when, when you do drive up, you're in a 2007 Prelude, so it's all a lie. <laughs> and then the, n- nobody likes this haggling, but what the, what the person is trying to do, what the salesman is trying to do, is elicit from you information about the maximum price that you will pay. And one of the things that I think that your listeners should remember, because we don't usually think about this, we think about, well, what is the price? The price is something that comes about as a result in a competitive market of many, many actions at the margin. But the thing is that almost every single buyer would have paid more, and almost every single seller would have accepted less. Only the marginal buyer and the marginal seller, a tiny minority of the market participants, are the ones who actually are indifferent between selling or buying and not buying at that price. So a whole lot of money is being left on the table by one or the other. Which is always true in a competitive market, right? It, it, it's just fine. There's that, no, but, but then why not have something that's not the price? And most of the world, in malls, in, you know, if, if you walk into some kind of uh, shopping area in Asia, in the Middle East, there's no the price. There, you know, there may be several cards with prices on them, but there's no the price you were going to negotiate a price. And there's a, there's a the, in, in automobiles, in used cars, um, some uh, automobile companies like CarMax have taken the, the haggle part out of it. But many used cars, you still get that chance to, for price discrimination. And, and here's what price discrimination is. The seller has a maximum amount uh, forgive me, the seller has a minimum amount for which he will part with this merchandise. Buyer has a maximum amount that he would pay. And if the amount that you would pay is greater than the seller will part with it for, then a sale is at least possible. But there's a, there's a gap. There's the difference between the most that I would pay and the minimum that the seller would accept. And usually, this is, I think it's important to remind folks about this, usually knowing that there's a gap is irrelevant. Right, the fact when I walk into a grocery store and there's this big uh, display of apples and they're thirty eight cents a pound, and I'm willing to pay four dollars because I love apples. Mm-hmm. The fact that there's this big gap between what the grocer will sell it for and what I'm willing to pay is irrelevant. Nope, it never even comes up. They don't say to me as I walk in, oh, you're, "I see you're, you've been here every week. You must really like apples." You're, yeah. you're, the price today is two fifty. And uh, I said, well, no, I won't pay more than 80 cents. And we start negotiating. There's a market price, uh, and as it, it may differ across stores, of course, at a point in time, uh, but the differences are usually going to be fairly small. There's a market price, and all the people who choose to buy get what we call consumer surplus. They pay less than what they value the good at, the maximum they'd be willing to pay. And the sellers have through competition, been forced to drive price down to a price where they're still making some money, but not as much as they'd like and not as much as they could if they could charge each person a particular price relative to their value. And the car business is a little different. And, of course, I want to mention we did a podcast with a a car dealer on some of these issues. We'll put a link up to it uh, when I bought my Honda uh, Accord. And I did have such an unpleasant experience. I did try to get from him uh, some insights, insights and inside information about his business. And there's some value there. You, you had such an unpleasant so – what did you say? Russ, I really hate you. Will you be on my show? Uh, yeah. I, no, I said, um, <laughs> I said I'm spending uh, $25,000, and usually in America, I can spend $10 and be pretty happy about a purchase. Yeah. I can spend 
$300, say, for an iPod, and I'm ecstatic. I walk out in a buoyant mood. Here I am spending $25,000, the second largest purchase uh, I'll make in my lifetime other than a house, and I'm angry. What is well, why? Because he had lied to me to get me into the his, – his salesperson had lied to me to get me into his dealership about what the price would be. Yep. Because the, the reason you were angry is you weren't sure what the real price was. I didn't know what was, the, quote, real price was. And, and you might have been able to get it for less. And, the, and, and it, that's and, very upsetting. And we talked about that, and he said, I could have gotten it for less. By the time we were done, uh, he'd left some money. I'd left some money on the table, but not so much that I was angry if he was telling the truth. Yeah. But that is the problem. The, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I was going to say economists know what the price is. It's P star. Uh, in my <laughs> class, anyway, I use a star for the price. Yeah. But there is no the price, and it's particularly true with cars, right? When we talk about the apples, there's no the price because you know each each store sells it a little differently, probably. But the differences are small. With the car, it's not small; it's large. Yeah, but why, why is it? Why is it that sometimes there is a the price and sometimes there's not? The answer has to be it's something like the transactions cost of negotiating separate prices for each buyer are so big that it would swamp the profits you would get from being able to discriminate across different elasticities, that is, different amounts that you want to buy. That's one answer. The other answer would be competition everywhere else uh, forces, quote, one price. Uh, we should call it a no-haggle price, actually, not one yeah. price. In every market besides houses and cars uh, in America, pretty much, uh, there's a no-haggle price. That's true for appliances, shirts, uh, apples. Um, uh, you know, I, I thought that too until lun until lunch today. I had lunch with a graduate student. I asked him about this, <clears throat> and he said, "You know, what you could actually do is con is contract out the haggling function, and you could do it with the things like Priceline. What does Priceline do? Priceline seems like it's an advantage for the consumer, doesn't it? Except." Suppose I were the seller. What would I want you to do, Russ? What would help me the most? It's if you would announce to me the maximum amount that you would pay. Just tell me, what's the most you will pay? And it may or may not be bigger than the amount that I would accept. I'm going to keep that secret. So suppose I'm talking about hotel rooms, airplane flights, all sorts of other things that get sold on Priceline. What, what happens? What happens is... It used to be no haggle. Well, but the, you know, but but the consumer announces the maximum amount that he would pay. You know, so the, the 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 hotel has a listing, and it says, "Here's how much our reservations are. No matter who you are, fifty four dollars a night." The the consumer though goes to Priceline and says, "You know, the most that I would pay is seventy five dollars a night." And there's actually documented instances on Priceline of people paying on Priceline more than the maximum amount that the hotel would ever charge. Yeah, I've seen, because, that, on, I've seen that on StubHub, too, people who yeah, aren't, if they, you're they, not careful. Well, they, they, they announce, well, you, in price discrimination, what I want to know is what's the most you would pay. But what keeps that information from being, uh, from exploiting me, usually, and I think it is partly, still partly true in the car business, so I want to come back to it, is competition. So it's true that the, no, that the haggling allows for the possibility of price discrimination. Mm -hmm. But then you'd think, given how many different car dealers there are, you'd think there would be a dealer who'd say, uh, in competition, I'm going to just charge a single price. And of course, Saturn tried this. It hasn't yeah. been particularly successful. Uh, and, and the internet is forcing this on some dealers, sort of. And this, uh, I'll explain the sort of in a minute, maybe. But 
the idea would be, well, there's just one price. Don't I don't like haggling. You don't like haggling. Why doesn't competition among car dealers and car manufacturers push push the price down to the uh, competitive price, the price that allows for some profit but not not an excessive amount? And and one answer would be that one answer is well, it's not that competitive. The second, but I don't find that a very appealing answer. The second answer would be is that there are advantages to haggling that accrue to the customer that don't seem to that aren't obvious, right? So it could be the case that even though the haggling part is unpleasant, the average price is lower than it otherwise would be than in a no haggle because of inventory challenges. They don't know the right. They don't know P star on a particular day or week or month. So the market reveals P-Star through this haggling, and if they had to set a price in advance, it actually might be higher than you'd pay in the, in the, haggle, in the haggling world. Yep, I wonder. It, 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 it seems mysterious to me. Yeah, it, it, me too, which means that people out there right now are laughing that, that we, well, we, the, we, we the, don't the, understand The answer this. I would give is it, it, you're optimistic about this kind of at least – pretty close to monopolistic, oligopolistic industry, uh, choosing things that are going to benefit the consumer because of competition. I think the reason that they still use uh, haggling is that it benefits them. They can make more profits. They're, they're choosing the one that helps them make more profits. And what they've done over the long run is drive down the average willingness of consumers to buy American cars. Well, yeah, you could argue it's been a short-run winner and a long-run loser. Yeah. Uh, if you go back to the 80s, uh, which is when I first entered the car market, uh, I remember that if you wanted a Honda, it was no haggle. <laughs> yeah. uh, there was a, in fact, you paid above the sticker price. Yeah. Uh, and my first car was, uh, was a Honda Civic, which was in very high demand. The dealers didn't get, quote, as many as they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, voluntary import restraints. Uh, that the Reagan administration had imposed. So there was a certain number of cars that came in, and uh, people fought like crazy to get them. And they said, "Here's the price: take it or leave it." Yeah, uh, there's three guys right behind you. Yeah, and they'd say, and I'd say, "Well, but it's fifteen hundred above the sticker." They say, "Yeah, that's fine. If you don't yeah. want it, don't, don't. We got three guys behind you." In fact, they were doing me a favor to selling it, selling yeah. it to me for only fifteen hundred. Of course, yeah. above, but of course, I had to wait a month. Even it wouldn't. It was I couldn't even get the car. Such yeah. an alien world to to what we're we've become accustomed to. But you'd think that um, that excess demand for foreign cars, particularly Japanese cars, would have put a scare, in, and it did, obviously, into American car makers and think, you know, maybe we need to try something different. But it, there, there was a corrupt bargain, and you said the reason. The voluntary restraint agreement benefited American car makers because there, there weren't enough really to be able to compete away the advantage. Yeah. And it benefited Honda. It did dramatically increase their profits. Yeah. Because they, they, they were not competing either. They were not forced to drive cars down. They, were, they had other markets. And their and, other Japanese sellers had the same yeah. restraints. I think, you know, I don't know the institutional details. I think the Japanese government actually decided yeah. which de- which manufacturers in Japan got the share of the total. It was a really With bizarre. Toyota and Nissan. Yeah, yeah. So th- there, were, there were three auto companies. They divided it up, and they had basically a non-compete agreement, which if the government hadn't done it, would have violated the Sherman Act. Yeah. But since the government did it, it was all okay. Yeah. So let, let's we've gone far afield here. Let's go back to the. Uh, I think I derailed us. It was a very good, interesting derailment. But I think I derailed us when you were talking about the fact that 
the structure of the political power in the hands of dealers uh, created a restraint on GM and Chrysler and Ford uh, in their ability to restrict how many lines they had. Yeah, and it, to, to get rid of products that people weren't buying. That, that just happens. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to increase this line, we're going to decrease this line. If, remember with McDonald's, the Arch Deluxe, the, the worst sandwich in history. It lasted about a month, but they just stopped selling it. And that was, I don't know anything about the Arch Deluxe. What was the nature of it? Well, it was, a, it was supposed to be a hamburger for adults. It had a lot less ketchup and a lot more mustard. It just turned out that it tasted really bad. Mm-hmm. And so they, they just... they'd, they'd done this marketing. Some people liked it. They rolled it out with great fanfare. Nobody bought it. And two or three months later, they stopped selling it. So the analogy would be that if you opened up a Arch Deluxe dealership, yeah. uh, you were at a McDonald's franchisee who specialized in the Arch Deluxe, uh, you could hold them hostage and say, uh, "Keep making them because you, you've got I made a deal you, with you. You have to run Arch Deluxe commercials just to focus on this one product nobody wants to buy, just to get me up to the point where I break even. Because that was the deal you signed in your contract. Yep. yep. And it was a deal you signed because they had you over a barrel because of state laws that were designed, I think, in some ways, in good faith." to reduce the power imbalance between large corporations and these small businesses, the small local businesses that are the backbone of America. No doubt. Uh, one of the things that we haven't talked about, and uh, if you want to say something else after I ask you this, just go ahead. But um, I saw a statistic the other day that the average Chrysler and GM dealer sells a little over one car a day, whereas the average uh, – Toyota or Honda dealer sells three or four. I don't remember the number. But I, it makes you wonder the whole um, – that whole process – of course, that's the average. Now, obviously, there's some dealers doing very well. Others maybe who are limping along. Hoping well, if, but if, if there's some that are doing better than Russ, than that, Russ, then there's some that are doing worse. A lot worse. <laughs> Correct. They're selling one a that's, week. Yeah. Uh, I think I've seen some of those. I've been in those. Uh, but it raises the question, you know, if you're selling a car a day – uh, you got a huge staff. Uh, what's the what are the side payments that are going on there? I mean, we've talked when I talked to the Honda dealer on the show uh, a year or so ago. He, um, you know, he he talked about how the manufacturer will offer incentives uh, that the you know the the profit of the dealer is very ambiguous, very hard to figure out. Yeah. The, the obvious thing you look at is the price you paid minus. The price he paid for the car, but of course, the price he pays for the car is not really under carefully and precisely known. Yeah. Well, they, a- they, I think the answer is they changed their business model. Instead of focusing on the flow, which is what you said, which is cars sold per day, per week, whatever, they focused on the stock, which means that there's a large. Suppose I'm a Chevrolet dealer. There's quite a few Chevrolet cars out there that have been sold. They've been brought in by somebody else, and so I start to specialize in service. And I have warranties for all this stock of cars that have been sold over the last five years, these extended warranties. Basically, it's a tied good. So I, I make my money by offering warranties. And I offer all sorts of other services. Offer is probably wrong. You've ever been to a, a, a dealership? It's, it's like dealing with pirates. The, the, the things that they try to sell you or tell you that you need, it, it's remarkable. But you go there because I'm making quote marks that you can't see with my fingers. You go there because it's free. So a very short-run strategy. People were so angry at, these, at the, the dealership 
service contracts. That was another reason they started going somewhere else. But it was the only choice that they had. So they ended up, I think, eating their seed corn. They weren't selling cars anymore, so they tried to make all the money they could with monopolistic, sharp, predatory practices, in some cases, on uh, uh, service. You're talking about the dealer now, not the the, manufacturer. The the local dealer. Yeah. Yeah, the the, the local dealer. They're they're stuck. You got the Uh, same – you got the same – Principal agent problem, though the incentive problem that you know the the principal, the manufacturer, GM, corporate Detroit, they want their dealers to provide really good service because that to makes sell cars and to sell cars. But why? You know, I, I'm not going to take us here because it's a whole other discussion. It also reminds me a little bit of the uh, distribution system for movies, right? Yeah. Uh, the way studios push movies down the distribution chain, the movies have this incentive to make try to make money on the uh, the uh, concessions and it's, yeah, popcorn, right? And a tide good. Well, t- that's another conversation. Yeah. we've talked about a little bit with Richard McKenzie, but the, the um, with, with the car dealer, you know, if if the if the local dealer does a gruesome job repairing my car, or is predatory, as you say, and tries to sell me a bunch of stuff I don't need, and I resent it later because I find out he took advantage of me. That sours me on not just him, on the dealer, but on GM because I don't really make that distinction very well. I just think I don't want to buy a GM car. I get a lousy service. It means GM goes bankrupt. So how does GM or how do they try to maintain uh, the service part component of that, but right? The, but the, the story that you told before is exactly right. What happened was, by the time they realized, I, now I guess I would make a, a Gulliver on the shore of Lilliput um, sort of picture, he's tied down with all these many ropes. By the time he realized it, he couldn't move anymore. It was too late. And so, yes, GM wanted to try to get out of it. They wanted to, to, they wanted to improve service, and so they have Mr. Goodwrench advertising to try to improve the image that people have. But the fact is that service is rapacious for many, not all, but for many dealerships. GM can't solve the principal agent problem because they're bound with all these ropes about um, franchisee uh, contracts with state governments. So they were stuck. By the time they realized that it was a problem, and they did, I I, I agree with you completely. They, They tried to solve the problem. It was too late. The, the the principal agent control that they had over their franchisees was broken. You know, it's interesting. I never thought about this, but the um, the creation of the Saturn line, the original idea was to make, I think, to make a more foreign car like company within GM. Uh huh. And the original hope was that was that Saturn was <laughs> really naive. If this was really true, but this was the original hope. Original hope was that the Saturn corporate culture would would solve, and then influence the GM corporate culture. Of course, it, it, yeah, it, it went influences the, too much. It went the other way. Yeah, <laughs> Saturn metastasized. Yeah, Saturn had well, no, but Saturn had trouble uh, keeping. I think the GM culture out of there. Yeah, but line. that's what I mean. It would it, it metastasized from the cancer that was in the main GM culture. So. You know, Saturn's original idea was very touchy feely, no haggle, friendly, um, a different Good kind service. of different kind of car, different kind of service. And I think they thought, presumably, that by starting from scratch, uh, 
you know, kind of going the other way. They'd like to cut out some lines. They can't. Instead, they're going to create a new line that maybe yeah. can can be profitable because it'll be structured a different way. Perfect. It's a, that's a, I hadn't thought of that myself, but that's a perfect example. They couldn't change the corporate culture that they were locked in, into in all the other lines. And so it actually shows how desperate they were. They, they went around. They tried to go and create something else. And it was, it was a mild success for a little it while. It was. Well, it had a certain attractiveness. I think they created an attractive identity around the brand. And the no-haggle thing was attractive. But it proves all the points that you've been making. GM actually knew what they needed to do. There were just too many constraints. Yeah, it's very... Um... You said, why don't we go to no-haggle? You said, why don't they make better cars? Well, they tried. I want to go back to the service thing because you pointed out in an email to me when we were arranging this podcast that you know, the auto business really has three parts, and they, they're all lumped together within the dealership. There's service, there's uh, the selling of the car, and there's the financing of the car. Yeah. And those could all be separate, right? You could, you could go to a, a car store, pick a car off the shelf, finance it through your bank or any other – way you could finance a car and when it broke you could repair it at a garage your local garage or a gm repair place that was separate from the gm car store separate from the gm finance store and instead they for reasons that i don't understand but might make sense at least at some point they bundled all those together under the same roof and i suspect that in the early days of of franchising and dealerships uh that there was a better incentive system working for them or something was different because that isn't obviously a good idea. Yeah. Yep. You'd you think you would want to contract out at least service. But for, for years, the most profitable part of GM was GMAC, the GM Acceptance Corporation, which was the financing arm. They made money. The automobile manufacturing part of it broke even, and the, uh, the franchises made money on service. So the only way, the cool thing about this industry is bizarre the only place people made money was on financing and service. And there was this other thing, which was manufacturing and sales, where they just broke even. Uh, normally, you'd say, well, that part must have been pretty competitive then, and the other two parts uh, were less competitive. There, there's no reason to think that. Um, no, I, I think that, that, that sounds exactly right, because they found a way to tie sales to uh, service through an artifice, it looks like if I give you a warranty that I'm actually doing you a favor. But what I'm doing is making you to come to me for service. But now, when it, you it say that, not competitive. No, but when you're talking about the warranty, you're talking about the manufacturer's warranty the or manufacturer's an extension warranty. Now, why is that? Let's say I buy a um, uh, a GM car, and I it six months into it, I've got a problem. There's a noise under the hood, a knocking sound. Right. So I go in, and why is why is that? Why are they going to make money on me? Because there's two things that are covered by the warranty, and you know, it looks like this exhaust pipe, which is not covered, it's going to have to be replaced. Why don't we go ahead and take care of that now? Are you sure that's how they made their money? No, I'm not sure, but I do know that service and financing was where all the profits were made. And your, I'm just following up your speculation, pumpkin. You said they Don't must be less pumpkins. competitive. I, 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 I'm sorry the listeners know my pet name for you now. <laughs> so I don't know if that's true because, you know, the other, the other way to think about it is after uh, – well, I know it's not true that that's your pet name for me, by the way. I just want to make that clear from the start. But, but the, the part that I wonder about is if they really did make money on their service, there's, there's two ways you can make money on service, okay? Uh, one way is 
you charge nothing to the customer during the warranty period, but I assume the dealer is comp- being compensated by GM for those well, repairs. Well, but then, then, then GM was not really making money. They were they, they had to take that out of the purchase price, and I think that was the, the – the, it's true that they were selling the additional warranty. Maybe the warranties were overpriced, uh, but I think they were pretty competitive. The other possibility is they made their money after the warranty expired uh, on the yeah. service side, uh, and that people would go there out of either loyalty, fear that the you know the other mechanics outside the dealership system wouldn't do a good job, or the complexity of the parts. Yeah, that, that I ha- that, that's often when I go because I never go to the dealer if I can avoid it. Uh, but the the mechanic that I'll go to say, "Look, that's a dealer part. I can't get it." Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be. So the, you're, you're probably right that whether it's habit or whatever, I continue to go. It's just that I find that hard to believe because I personally would never go to the dealer. So where are we? Do we have anything else to say on this? I mean, it's just a, the the point that I didn't know about that that you've raised that's so fascinating is this issue of of state laws that constrain um, readjustments of those contracts or just the existence of those of those franchises. Yeah, and the, and the, the 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 big companies they were pretty politically powerful, but they didn't fight them in all the local states state because state. they didn't really have any any presence there, and they were making money. They didn't have to worry about it. Well, that comes back to my original point that that in a less competitive world, the only issue is how the rents and profits get divided up. You'd like more than less, but as long as there's a lot to go around, you can. Yep. That's not so not so bad. As competition arises from overseas and your profit margins get sliced, suddenly that division of the pie no longer is is going to work. And they didn't have flexibility because they were tied down like Gulliver. Love that. <laughs> Gulliver Man, GM. Uh, um, but anything else you want to say about franchises? No, I, I think that, that it, it, I would hope that, that this gives the listeners a little more of an idea of what's happened to GM and why it's so important that they've been able to go into bankruptcy. That, that's why they're, I mean, it's easy to feel sorry for, and I do. I mean, I, I know some people who own Chevrolet dealerships. This is a hard time for them. Yeah, it's depressing. But the fact is, we have to get rid of a bunch of these. They are, they are not profitable, and there's no reason taxpayers should be propping them up. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering why uh, – it's, it's hard to understand why they were so profitable before, given that, that they weren't yeah. make, selling many cars. They are servicing the cars. Okay, they're making some money on that, and they are making some money on the financing. Um, well, but the, for the, the cars themselves in the 60s and 70s, like you said, uh, advertising and image – just created a downward sloping demand curve for each of these brands. People loved Mustangs. They 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 loved some of these cars. The just the the way that the sheet metal was put together, that the Cadillac with the big fins. We we don't revere cars from the late seventies and early eighties. Boy, that's a classic. But a nineteen fifty seven Chevrolet, that's a classic. Yeah, they had some good they had some good years, and then they did the, something yeah. special. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, I'm sure listeners have some insights into this that we don't have either because they have inside knowledge of the process. And so I encourage you to comment on this uh, on the uh, in the comment section of this podcast. And um, I, I guess uh, the, the last question would be why in the good days, why there was even franchising at all. I, we understand now that it was a more viable model when the industry was, was less competitive – why that was the and we haven't worked, I don't think we've used the word Ford in this conversation at all. They yeah. they seem to be doing better. Well, I, I know all over the place here in Germany, I see Fords. 
Yeah, they have a, Ford is selling cars. They're much more successful in Europe uh, yeah. than the other than the other two Americans um, car makers. But um, why you wouldn't have vertical integration? Why GM wouldn't have its own dealerships uh, extending down the vertical integration down into the retailing process? Yeah, there's two questions I'd like the listeners to answer because I we 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 talked about them, but I don't know the answer. One is why the franchisee system to begin with, because the, the capital market explanation, I think, is just false. Right. And the other thing is, why does haggling persist? Because it seems like people want to avoid it. Your speculation was that haggling persists because people get a lower average price. Mine was because they get a higher average price and it benefits the company. Right. I'd, I'd like to know what the truth is. Yeah, that's a good question. I, on, on, the, on the first part about why this model is there at all, I, there might be a a Hayekian uh, explanation there, which is I interviewed uh, – I'm interviewing you a day after I interviewed Charles Platt. So I'm, I'm expecting our interview today to run a week after Charles Platt's. And Charles Platt spent uh, a week working at Walmart to see if it was a nightmare or not. And he uh-huh. was surprised at how pleasant it was. Yeah. Um, one of the things he talked about is how much autonomy a local Walmart has, not just at the management level, but down to the associate lowest level of employee. And you'd think that taking that point and, – and the argument he gave, which I think is true, is uh, local knowledge that there's no way corporate can successfully understand what's going on at the local level. Yeah, it's and, much and better watch costs and monitor things. Better to put those decisions in the hands of the people closest to it. Yep. So the argument would be that you know, corporate GM, although it could run its own retail outlet, uh, it's going to have trouble figuring out local market conditions. This is the claim. I, I don't know if it's true, but the, this would make sense at least. It's like your, your early story. This is at least consistent. With the argument, still could be wrong, yeah, but yeah. but the argument would be that the um, the GM doesn't know local market conditions. You want to put an immense amount of potential profit. You're going to give away money if you're GM. You're going to give yeah. away money. You're going to let the franchisee get really rich, and you're willing to do that because you really want to incentivize him in a way you couldn't if he was your employee. Yeah, um, you know another version of this is um, the car rental business. I don't know how this would, the analogy works, but in the car rental business, um, the local manager can be the highest paid person in the chain, mm-hmm. which is weird. You know, usually yeah. you think the, the, the VP or the, the, the chair, you know, maybe not the chairman, but a lot of the executives w- would make a lot more money than the, than the local manager. But the local manager has this enormous incentive the local manager's bonus is very tied to um, success of the of the of the local office, and so if the local office thrives, the manager makes a ton of money. Yeah, and so some of thriving is watching costs. There's just local knowledge, local direct knowledge about monitoring. Yeah, and some of it's costs. yeah, some of it's just monitoring, right? Just to keep an eye on stuff that a employee is not going to have the incentive to do. But what? You know, for this answer to be to be the right answer, you'd really want to see effort being highly correlated with outcomes in in either measuring those costs, keeping them down, avoiding you know theft. Yeah. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, margins where 
uh, malfeasance and laziness could turn out to be very unpleasant. Well, for the- a, I, I have to admit, Russ, in, in favor of your proposition here, there was a paper in the Journal of Law and Economics in 1982 by a guy named Richard Smith about the reason why uh, you could make more money for just this reason, having a local residual claimant. Uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that uh, with the podcast if the listeners would what, like to. Did he have any facts, or was it just speculative like mine? Um, <laughs> no, he he, well, he he makes an argument, and then he looks at uh, different profit rates. Um, the well, I'll, we'll, 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 if the if the listeners are are interested in in that, he, he what he does talk, what he did, it, what he analyzed. There's also a paper by uh, Peter Pashigan. Yep, uh, one of my favorite economists who did an analysis of all the all the different kinds of um, incentives and uh, contract uh, forms that were used for different kinds of franchisees, and did an analysis there of what uh, creating residual claimants created more profit opportunities, and that's why there's so many really really rich automobile uh, franchise owners. When you think of it, in many local communities outside of large cities, a very reliable way to make money was to have a Chevrolet or Cadillac dealership. Although and the, the, the only way that they always could make a lot of money is if they're somehow producing value. Although you point out something I didn't realize is that some of that value was produced artificially through regulations that it they is protected put in place. by the yeah. state, and it, it, yeah. it's a chicken or egg thing. I don't know if it came from the fact that there's this regulation, or once they were relatively wealthy. They've invested in local politicians to yeah. protect that position. Probably a little of both. Yeah. Of course, the challenge to these kind of arguments about – I mean this sounds nice, right? So here – let me just lay it out again. The argument would be the reason you want to have a franchise rather than vertical integration is you want to give the local uh, office an enormous incentive to do a really good job. It requires a lot of effort, a lot of monitoring, and so you're willing to give them a residual share of the profits rather because than – you can actually make more money yourself by doing that. The, That's the cool right, thing. Right, the manufacturer. Yes. Because You'll they're, they're going to sell more cars. The dealers could do such a great job. And if you didn't, you'd sell a lot fewer because they'd be lazy and that lot would be dirty and you'd have trouble – You'd have to fan out into the country with, with all kinds of oversight to make sure that didn't you, happen. You wouldn't have repeat customers. You wouldn't have brand loyalty. Right. And yet, and yet uh, there are other models that, that, that's, that thrive. So again, to take the Walmart example, Walmart, um, Walmart is an in-between, right? Walmart doesn't have a franchise. The, the local Walmart isn't owned by an independent entrepreneur. Yeah. It's owned by Walmart. But to keep the incentives for monitoring and information production that that you get at the local level, there are bonuses and incentives and um, uh, return to the local employee doing more than just keep sweeping the floor. They've, they've got a – they can make a lot more money than their salary if they do a great job on the margin figuring out the right price and the right things to put on special and, and just keeping the store pleasant and et cetera. And that's the way they yeah. monitor it. Uh, and then you have other place stores, I assume, where it just – it's a regular employment arrangement. It's um, you know The Gap doesn't have uh, local franchisees within the mall. Uh, that that make I don't think, but maybe they do. Maybe they do have. I'm sure actually they do have bonuses and other things that try to mimic what the franchise system does on its own. So the question would be, you know, why do you have one and the and not the other in these different circumstances? That would yeah. be the the fundamental question. Right. It's a, and the the problem is, you know, when you and I talk, it all sounds very reasonable, but it's really it's a just so story. We end up by saying. 
And that's why the monkey has a tail. <laughs> because it makes perfect sense, but then how do you explain that this other arrangement also exists, apparently in equilibrium? Yeah, so the monkey without a tail. <laughs> the lemur or whatever he is. Now. Yeah, the, the monkey with webbed feet who yeah. can swim. Yeah. Each of them is the answer to some complicated problem of transactions cost. Well, as, you know, as we've often said on here, a lot of economics is ex post storytelling. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. And a lot of times uh, you learn a great deal about how the world works from being forced to figure out if you can come up with a story. Because yeah, sometimes I, I, I had no idea about these state regulations until I spent a couple hours looking. Of course, one of the frightening things is there's probably 12 other things that we don't know about, which is what I mentioned. I'm sure the listeners can chime yeah. in that would make some of these stories untenable and, and make us, uh, if we knew them, we'd tell better stories. Uh, I, I actually think that this is one of those times we're going to learn a great deal from the comments. Yeah, well, I, we look forward to those. And I, uh, now, Mike is, uh, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, Mike is out in Germany, and I, I'd like to. Mike has some cultural observations, but I think I'd like to save that uh, for another podcast down the road because I, we're, we're we're short on time. Uh, my guest, and I, we look forward to that. Yeah, my my guest today has uh, been Mike Munger of Duke University, currently visiting Friedrich Alexander University at Erlangen Nuremberg. Mike, thanks as always, for being part of EconTalk. It was a great pleasure. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.